Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October the 3rd, 2017. This is episode 2091 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a Tuesday show for you. You know what that means? It's a Just Jack show. No feedback, no emails, no calls, no expert counsel, no special guests. Just me talking about a subject, and usually one that I love, because if I don't love something, I don't talk about it a lot. Today I'm going to talk about homesteading. Which, of course, I love. I, I have been a homesteader most of my life. I guess there was a, a period of exodus in my life between when I got out, well, actually when I joined the Army, right? Because when I joined the Army, I was a young, single guy stationed in Panama living in the barracks. That kind of put the K-Bosch on homesteading. And then when I got out, I took a long walk on the Appalachian Trail from... Uh, from central Pennsylvania to New Hampshire, not quite the whole thing, but a good piece of it to get my mind back together. I moved, to Penn, or moved from Pennsylvania to Texas, and I just tried to put a life together. and was a single guy running around bars chasing girls until I met my wife. So that kind of pulled me out of homesteading, but that brief period of years there is about the only part of my life, now going into its uh, 46th year, that I, that I haven't been actively a homesteader. I grew up homesteading. I grew up in Jacksonville as a younger child in apartment complexes, and even though my my mom and my father weren't really into any of this stuff, you know, I was planting popcorn outside of our apartments, growing tomatoes and peppers and things like that at our apartments, and I did all kinds of gardening and little things like that with my grandparents on my mother's side down there. All my summers that I spent up in Pennsylvania with my grandfather and his toolage, running his garden for him, doing his small livestock and stuff like that. And as a teenager, I mean, I really loved it. And as a young adult, when I when I got into you know my my early twenties and became a father and a husband, boy, I really sunk my teeth back into it. And so I love this topic, but I'm not going to talk about Jack's homesteading or homesteading as I think it should be. I'm going to talk about the future of homesteading in America today, where I think the movement's going. What this comes from is, you know, you got to think about this TSP is almost 10 years old, right? I mean, we had our ninth anniversary in June. Um, it's going to be Christmas before you know it. We'll be coming right back around to be a decade at TSP. And all the way back in 2008 when I started this, in, in about probably the second or third month that I started talking more about homesteading in general, I said, and I'm paraphrasing myself because I, I couldn't go back and you know listen to 10 episodes to find exactly what I had said, but this is basically what I said as I started talking about homesteading back in 2008. Many are comparing the current interesting in homesteading to earlier back-to-the-land movements of the 70s and the 30s, both of which fizzled out. There were big movements. There was actually a movement in the 50s, too. And there was even another little one in the 60s. But there were two big ones in the 70s and the 30s where kind of everybody, you know, give up the, give up the city life and run out to the woods and do the homesteading. And, and, and both of those fizzled out. But I said this time would be different. Homesteading is returning as simply being an American way of life, and current forces will only make it stronger. We're going to talk about whether or not that's what's happened in the last 10 years and where I think we're headed with it today. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. 
Sponsor of the day number one today is JM Bullion. JM Bullion is an incredible company to do business with, especially if you want to follow my advice, which is 5% to 10% of your net worth should be in physical gold and silver and possibly other precious metals. Why? Because it is your wealth insurance and wealth assurance plan. That's what precious metals are to me. I don't think you should be one of those people. I'm not like G. Gordon Liddy on the TV telling you, go out and blow all in on gold. I'm not... I'm not with the guy William Devane. I buy gold from Roslyn Cap. Right? No, look, I, I think it just makes sense to over time build a good storage, a good storage of value in precious metals in your own life is something that you can have as anonymous wealth and that you can pass down to future generations and build generational wealth with it or have it there when it's necessary. And if you're going to do that, then my view is you should pay as little as possible for the best product you can get. That's what you get at J.M. Bullion. The two biggest silver houses I know of are Monex and Apmex. They're the two biggest companies I know of. And they're good companies, and they do, they do okay. And I even looked at them as potential sponsors and actually talked to, to one of them for quite a bit. But I ended up selecting JM Bullion. There was a few reasons why. One, better pricing. Two, better service. And three, I could talk to the president of the company on a first-name basis. His name's Michael. And we have now had a relationship that spanned about seven years together. They're still here as a sponsor. So when you need silver and gold, you know what to do. Check out jambullion.com. And if you're making buys over $300 and you're an MSB member, you do get a discount. That's one of the only discounts I think that exists in the silver and gold world, especially when you're paying an already lowest price available in the market. Next up today, bulkammo.com, the other precious metal, copper-jacketed lead. Um, you know what's going to happen right now. More and more rumbling and talk about gun regulations because of the recent shootings in Vegas, and more and more panic buying of guns, ammunition, magazines, etc. So go out and stock up now if you haven't already done so. And a great place to do that is JM Bullion with great pricing on all the common calibers, and they have things in stock that others don't. You can learn more at jmbullion.com. And again, MSB members, check your MSB benefits section before doing business with JM Bull, or I'm sorry, with uh, Bull Camel because they do give you a special deal as well just for MSB members. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was. The year that was 61 AD as we move through history with the help of David Verne here today on the TSP Wiki at tspwiki.com, the survival, self-sufficiency, and history, historical wiki that you can be part of. If you've never checked out tspwiki.com, you should today, tspwiki.com. And if you want to contribute to the Encyclopedia of Knowledge, it's there. Please feel free to do so. You're like, I don't know how. We have free training videos that show you how. But check it out. It is the Encyclopedia of Knowledge in this world. Anyway, Nero begins to show his true colors in the year 61. Nero has spent most of his time as emperor, drinking, playing music, and partying. The empire did okay during the first few years of his reign because his two advisors, the former tutor Seneca and the Praetorian prefect Burrus, they guided Nero toward good policies and kept things stable. This year, Burrus dies. Nero appoints one of his friends, Tilginius, as prefect. Instead of acting as a moderating influence on the emperor, Tilginius incurs Nero's excesses. Nero had been widely popular with the people, thanks in large part to his massive social welfare programs, but this will soon change as he begins to go further off the rails. My take by David Verne. Popularity is a useful tool that savvy politicians like Augustus use to cement their power, but it was never the end goal. For Nero, popularity was the end goal and seemed to be viewed, and he seemed to view the throne as a popularity contest. He spent extravagantly and threw lavish parties and games. Nero was 17 when he came to power. Caligula was 24 when he gained the throne. Absolute power is a terrible by itself, but giving it to a college-age kid is so much worse. 
indeed. I have a unique perspective on this as a voluntarist. Giving so much power to anyone is a mistake. The youth just show us how big the mistake is. That's all I'll say about it today. Think about that as we move on through today's show. Anyway, next up, let me remind you guys, kind of mentioned it during the sponsor section, but you like this show, you love what I do, you want to help me keep doing it, join the MSB, get a bunch of great discounts, get a bunch of great content you can't get anywhere else, get all of the episodes of Survival Podcast all the way back to Episode 1, available in convenient zip files and a lot more stuff. And again, you're supporting the show at less than 20 cents an episode. To do that, just join the Members Support Brigade. Go to survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more and sign up there. Remember, I do take I take gold, I take silver, I take cash, I take barter, I take cryptocurrency, I take online payments, you name it. If you want to be a member and you want to provide something of value, you can get a membership in return for it. Just check out the page to learn more. Again, members tab at the survivalpodcast.com. And a real quick uh, little update, I don't talk about this often, uh, but a couple things you need to be aware of. We do have a Android app. If you are an Android user, we have an Android app. Somebody was supposed to make me an iPhone app, and it's not happened. And it's not happened for a long time. So if you are an iPhone developer, and you would like to get in touch with me and develop an iPhone app for the Survival Podcast, uh, I have a great way that I will do RevShare with you, uh, much to your advantage and my disadvantage. If you are interested in doing that, and you are actually a developer, not someone who thinks maybe they can do it, but you've actually developed other iPhone apps, Get in touch with me. Send me an email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, TSPC app in the subject line. If you're an Android user, again, you can go to the site and look in the center column. We have a, a medallion there you can click on, and you can get the Android app, and you can it's called Survive, and you can install that on your Android device. All right. Uh, the other thing I want to just real quick reminder, for those of you that use like your phones and stuff like that to access the website, you don't have to type out the survivalpodcast.com. We have a short domain, tspc.co. TSPC.co, so if you want to create it, get to the site quickly, you can just use that little additional piece of information there. Anyway, so let's talk about kind of what's going on. So as I said, I said back in 2008 that I thought this time was different, uh, that we would see homesteading be here for the long haul and, and pretty much never go away and only get stronger. So how's that worked out? I would say that today there are more people homesteading than there were 10 years ago. And that number is growing And the only time I think there's been more people homesteading in America than today is when almost everybody was doing it because they had to. I think if we look at it a per capita basis, if we go, let's say, from about 1930 onward, like by the reason there was a black to land movement in the 1930s is because people had left the land. And they did so in greater numbers over time, but you know that was kind of the, the turning point. And then World War II was a huge mechanization of America, and most of the GIs that came home, even if they dreamed about going back to the farm, didn't go back to the farm, they went to the suburbs. And I think if you take it from like the 1940s and 50s onward, that we have more people homesteading today than we did in, let's say, 1965. Which seems counterintuitive, but... I personally think it's the case. And I think, again, that number is growing. Can I prove that? No, I won't even know where to get the, the specs to prove it or the, 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 uh, the information to prove it. But based on my observations on and offline, and being a guy that has been around a while, I'm not a really old man, but I'm starting to feel like I am. You know, But I remember the 70s. And I remember the 80s. Well, I, I see more people involved in this stuff today than at any time. You know, I grew up hunting and fishing and homesteading in high school, and it was considered like a like it wasn't an oddball thing. But when I think about it, like most of the kids that I went to high school with didn't. 
And we were in rural Pennsylvania, really. So even back in the 80s, it wasn't the way I think people look nostalgically back and think that it was. And so I feel like we're growing at a, a greater rate as homesteaders in America than probably any time in history, other than, again, when everybody had to do that. And what I want to kind of do today is examine this phenomenon and examine its potential evolving future with you guys today. So let's talk about why I think homesteading has become so popular in the last 10 years. I think the first reason and the most important reason, and without this, it doesn't even matter what the other reasons are, is because it works. Like, it is a better way to live. It does make your life better. It is fun. It does you know, affect the bottom line. You, when you go out and plant food, it grows and you get to eat it. Right? It, it, it changes your mindset. It, it works. Uh, the next reason is because it improves the lives, health, and economy, economics of families and individuals. And what I mean by that is it, it does improve the quality of life. And we're, we're all intrinsically looking for something that improves our quality of life. This is something that almost everything human beings do is about the reduction of discomfort. I know that sounds a little bit wild, but it's, it, it's not. Let me explain. Let's say that you could be, right now, this second, completely and totally comfortable. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, anything that you did would actually reduce your comfort. Why would you move? Well, I got hungry. Well, that, that was because you're uncomfortable. My back started to hurt, even though it was really a comfortable position. Then you were trying to reduce discomfort. And when we buy a product, in some way we're trying to reduce discomfort. Okay? And, and, and so what that really is, is about improving the quality of our life. And I believe homesteading does that. It grounds us. It gives us a sort of a meditative thing, even those of us that don't think of ourselves as people that meditate. It, it, it really is something that makes our lives better. Especially if we do it right and smart, we don't go overboard. It does make us healthier. There is no way that you go outside and do exercise you otherwise would not do and don't become healthier. There's no way that you produce high-quality, nutritionally dense food and consume it and don't become healthier. And, and there's, there's just no way that when you're doing things that are good for your mental esteem that you don't become more mentally healthy as well. So it improves our health. It also improves the economics of families and individuals, because not everybody that's homesteading is an individual. Some of uh, the long-term listeners to this show that I have long-term you know, email conversations with and comment conversations with, I know are living individually. You know, they're, you know, some of them are older guys that never got married, and some are younger people just starting out. But it, it doesn't matter whether you're a family or an individual. If you're homesteading economically, you're better off if you're doing it smart and if you're doing it right. Uh, if you go look on the front uh, on the on the front page of the site today, or look up this episode if you're listening to it in the future, again episode 2091, you'll see that the featured photograph um, for today's episode is some stuff. Well, I made some stir fry, and it's some leafy greens cut up in a pot, and some peppers, and some chard, and some water spinach, and some fresh herbs, and things like that. And when I look at that pile. I think, well, I took that from the outside of the house to the inside of the house and cut it up and cooked it all in about 20 to 25 minutes. I was sitting down and eating it. 
And um, when I look at at it and say, let's say I had to go get that from the store, well, it would have been a half hour to my day minimum. I probably would have gotten other things, and of course I still do go to the store. But, you know, there would have been a time factor there, but let's throw that away. What would the cost of that be? Looking at that pile of food, realizing it's beyond organic, 15 bucks minimum, $15 that we had in one meal, and that was just the vegetative portion of it. Uh, that particular stir-fry, I believe I did that with quail that were harvested from our aviary from one of our meat runs with quail. So now add quail to it. You tell me what that's, 25 30 bucks. Uh, my buddy David came over this weekend to help me out with some issues I was having with my aquaponics system. And, you know, when I ask somebody to do something like that, I try to cook for them because it's kind of the right thing to do. I cooked a deer loin that was, you know, uh, to me, homesteading includes hunting and gathering, right? So deer that I had shot and a bunch more vegetables right out of the backyard. You know, we looked at that and said, well, what would that dish cost you in a restaurant? Probably 40 bucks each. And, and so when you're able to eat that quality of food, even if you're spending the same money, there's no doubt you're financially ahead because you're getting more for your lifestyle and your health. And, and so it works economically. It works from a lifestyle standpoint. It works from a health standpoint. And I, I think the reason those things are all true is, for, is my next main point and main reason is because it's innately human. I do not think that humans are what some scientists claim that we are, which is a scavenging animal. That the human being basically is a scavenger. One, one of the, the, the people that I actually really respect in the world of you know, permaculture and, and livestock management is Alan Savory. But I've heard him say that. It's, it, it's something I disagree with. Humans are scavengers. And he said, the reason that we're scavengers is if you take human beings and take our technology away back to when we first evolved as human beings and said to the human being, go run down a, go run down a giraffe or go run down a wildebeest and kill it with your teeth and eat it, we couldn't do it, that, that we innately scavenged. And I don't think that we don't scavenge, but I don't think that makes us flatly scavengers. Because you know, there's a lot of things we can kill and eat that we don't need much technology to do so. Simply stepping on it, beating it off a tree, hitting it with a rock, you name it. And, and that is part of who we are. Technology is part of who we are. We're not the void. Like, it's not like technology is separate from humanity. In fact, technology and the ability to... You see, understand, we, we look at technology in our world today and we see that like as an electronic controller. But the rock that sits there that my dog can't figure out is useful, but I can is a technology. And eventually my dog might even learn that technology because he'll take an egg and drop it on it out of his mouth because he's learned that it will break. Right? But it's, it's a lot bigger of a leap for a dog than a human to understand how to use a tool. That's technology. And we use tools to cultivate things and to harvest things. And that's innately human. And that's a big part of what homesteading really is all about, is using technology uh, from, from very low forms of technology to very high forms of technology to cultivate the things that we need to sustain ourselves. This is an innately human behavior. If you think about the way hunter-gatherer societies really work, very few hunter-gatherer societies are purist hunter-gatherer societies. Well, what would a purist be? A purist would be all they do is wander through the woods or the plains and take things from them, and they never cultivate anything. 
And even many of the societies that we looked at as we were more developed from, let's say, the West, like the Native American population, and saw them as purely hunter-gatherers, they were cultivating the entire freaking forest. They were cultivating the entire forest. There are systems in California that only began to actually break down about 50 years ago, even though the Native people that established them hadn't been there for hundreds of years. And we didn't even know they were systems until they started breaking down. These were systems that incorporated native plants there like manzanito, which basically means tiny apple. And these systems started to kind of break down, and the ecosystems didn't look so healthy anymore. And scientists examined it and finally realized there was a human component that created a sense of permanence in this natural system. But once the human was removed for long enough, the sense of permanence began to break down. This is who and what we are. This is how we came to be human on planet Earth. We walked in natural states, we observed natural systems, and we encouraged that which was beneficial, and we discouraged that which was, was not beneficial to us. And we developed society and culture and reason and logic around this thing. That's what homesteading is. And I don't think anybody but me explains it that way, and I think maybe that's why it's taken so long for people to realize, hey, Something we should be doing here. Um, and then I think like the biggest thing that we have today that we didn't have in earlier back to the land movements is the Internet. It makes such a huge difference that a person can have a question and go get an answer now. It makes such a difference that a person can think, Am, can I do this? And they, they pull up a YouTube uh, video and they start and they, they find somebody they resonate with. Maybe somebody you wouldn't or I wouldn't even like, but they like them. And they go back to the beginning and they see them be complete, you know, just bumbling idiots in the beginning with no idea of what they were doing. And they look at their later videos and they're producing food or they're, they're canning their food or they're, they're going out and they're harvesting wild mushrooms or whatever. And they look like they've got their act together. But they, they, they look at that channel and they go, it's been around for three years. And three years ago, these people didn't know shit. Well, if these bumbling ass idiots can do this, so can I. If this dumbass, redneck, hippie, duck farmer, Jack Spearco can do this stuff, so can I. That's a part of it. It's just the, the, the ability to see it being done and realize you can do it. Because one of the biggest reasons people don't do something is because they don't think that they can. They think it'll be too hard. They don't think it'll work. You just fit, put, put any label on it you want. But once a person looks at something and says, that's something I can do, if they have any desire for it, they generally give it a shot. But then there's also the encouragement component to the to the internet. You look at things like the regenerative agriculture group that we started on Facebook. There's so much mutual encouragement there. People come on and they're just having a shitty week, and people say, you know what, it's going to be all right. Here's some things you can do about that particular problem. And that makes you feel like you're not alone in this. Because even though homesteading's become more popular, I believe, than just about any time, you know, other than, like I said, when everybody did it, you still feel kind of alone. You're still the weird tomato lady or the weird chicken lady. You know, or the weird guy with the guns. You know, or the weird mushroom man or something like that. Uh, that's, that's how you sometimes feel in society. But that's changing. And a big part of that is it's changing because of the internet. I, I, before I go into some technologies that I expect to see growth of in the future in the world of homesteading, I want to tell you a story that kind of prompted this. So... Yesterday, Dorothy said, or actually it was Sunday, Dorothy said, hey, there's a guy coming by to pick up like eight dozen eggs from us. Could you spend some time and show him around? 
And, you know, I'm coming off of a vacation. I'm buried with a lot of work. I got a lot of stuff that needs to be done. And, and your general instinct is, man, not this weekend. But I was like, you know, I mean, the guy's buying eight dozen eggs from us. And she said he was a long-term customer, and he's a builder, a home builder, and he wants to know about your aquaponics system. Yeah, sure, I got it. So I go out and I show him the aquaponics system, and he's blown away. And he's asking me all types of questions, and I show him how I have the swales built. And he says he's got this house, and there's a uh, basically a, a gulch next to his house as part of his property, and he's trying to figure out how to make it not all wash out. And I talk to him about gabions and gabion-like technologies. And he gets really excited. And I show him my aquatics system, my timber frame ponds, things like that. The trees, the swell systems that are spreading water across, you know, moving water from my house 400 feet across the property with no moving parts, completely passively. And he, he wants me to come out and look at his property. He wants to talk to me. He gave me his whole spiel about, hey, you know, if you could do all these things, you could be mostly self-sufficient, uh, which I found, like, like, like he almost felt like he was, he was going out on a limb to tell him, because he had no idea who I really am, right? So he's almost like being a little bit timid in saying that, because he might look foolish, and of course, I'm like, of course you're right about that. And uh, I'm going to introduce him to my buddy David, because he wants to basically start offering components like an aquaponic system or a, a, a built automated garden or a, an attached greenhouse or something like that to his custom-built homes. And so, I mean, that's, that's a great opportunity there. But what it tells you is, like, in this world of mainstream business, they're now reaching out to grab onto a piece of this and drag it in. And I, I couldn't really tell how excited he really was or whatever. My wife came in after she saw him off and said, he said she said, he's so excited he said that was the best conversation he ever ha he's had in years. The best conversation he's had in years. And and that's what's happening to this. Because in the end, I would I, I see I hate when people say everybody. I hate that term, right? So people say, well, everybody's getting on board with this or everybody's excited about that. I find it to be one of the worst marketing phrases at all. So it's with a little trepidation when I say in the end, everybody wants some part of this. Now, I don't believe that everybody wants to do the work. I don't every believe that everybody wants a homestead. I don't want believe that everybody wants any animal, a cat or a dog, let alone some sort of livestock living on their property. I don't believe that everybody wants, you know, to even do sprouts, right? Like I don't believe that everybody wants to do these things, but I believe that every human being wants some product thereof. Because we all eat. And we all seek to remove discomfort, and we all want our lives to be better, right? These are the universal things. Not everybody wants an Apple iPhone 10. No, they don't. No, they don't. a whole bunch of Galaxy users don't give a shit, right? I want one, but I know you guys don't. So, like, that's just a dumb thing to say. But everybody does want, you know, everybody that's mentally healthy wants to live a little bit better of a life and have a little bit better quality food in their life. It, it's very, very universal, and we're reaching a point where it's 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 really becoming more of a thing that people are starting to realize that's missing from their life. So where do I think we're going to see some of the biggest growth 
Um, one of the things I think we're going to see more and more of throughout America is greenhouses and screenhouses and things like that because they solve so many problems. The greenhouse extends the growing season. It allows you to grow things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to grow. Screenhouses reduce, they don't eliminate, but reduce pest pressure. They reduce, you know, a, a lot of things they reduce is beyond the insect pests, but, you know, rabbits or rodents or things like that are heavily reduced with a good sealed-up greenhouse. Uh, and they allow for the addition of shade to make the winter months better. There's just so much that these, these systems do, and they're easy to understand. And a lot of them can be built as extensions onto existing homes or, if new homes are designed properly, be part of new homes. They enhance beauty. And again, I hate to say everybody, you know, everybody wants or everybody likes. I don't know many people that don't feel good about the ability when it's 25 degrees outside but the sun's shining and it hasn't been above freezing for days. And it's been kind of dreary and whatever, but the sun's a little bit out now. And you're feeling kind of in that winter doldrums. The idea that you could walk into your greenhouse and be surrounded by beautiful green plants maybe hear the sound of water running, and be standing there in the temperature 75 degrees and feeling like you just took a little mini vacation in South Florida. right? And I also don't know many people that, that wouldn't feel good about the fact when it's like 100 degrees out to be able to go into a shaded greenhouse surrounded by plants and hearing the birds chirping and all that and feeling like you know it's 30 degrees cooler, which is what it feels like in my you know, uh, sh- uh, shaded aviary. It's one of my favorite places on the property. Just hang out in there. Hang out with the quail running around at my feet, watch the fish swim. I mean, it it gives you so much. And then it produces see, see, it's all that from a lifestyle equation, and then it produces food. So I, I think we'll see a lot more of that. I think aquaponics is really beginning to become more understood. And I think you're going to see more and more people not just doing aquaponics, but... I think you're going to see less of the whole, I'm going to feed my whole family from an IBC in six beds. I think you're going to see a lot more of a concept of you know small-scale systems, mid-scale systems, designed more with an ongoing kind of grazer mentality. I'm not trying to produce all my food. You know, All I want to do is I want to be able to eat something from my backyard every day. Aquaponics does that in spades. And then fish are a byproduct of that system. And when we start tying those systems in with wicking beds, basically we have conventional large container gardening with low maintenance. And then we get the, the, the ecological boost, the nutrient boost of you know, the, the aquaponics and aquatic systems that are tied into them. Or even somehow used just to produce fertilizer for more conventional gardening. So I think we'll see a lot more with aquaponics. But I think maybe the real growth because aquaponics kind of has a foothold, is going to be aquatics. And, and I've tried over the years to do a lot to differentiate between the two. You know, you'll see my videos of some of my pond systems, and I'll say, this is not an aquaponics system. It might even have an aquaponics component in it, maybe an ebb and flow bed for filtration, but it's not aquaponics. It's not working as an aquaponics system. This is a pond with fish and plant life in it. And one of the reasons I think that we're going to see a lot of growth with that is because it works so well and because I think people are going to start looking to parts of the world where this is done as a matter of everyday life. And I think the one place in the world where people still to this day do the most to provide their own food out of their own backyard is Asia. 
And it's amazing to me, like, you know, whenever we're looking for any more customers for our duck eggs, one of our little secrets is my wife will pop into a nail salon. Why? Oh, I know, this is racist. No, it's just true, right? Because most of the girls that work there are Asian. And she goes, uh, I've got some duck eggs in the car. Is anybody? And it's like, and they go nuts because it's something that they miss having access to. And it's because they come from a culture that still values this stuff. And if you look to those cultures, whether it's large-scale rice patties and things like that, or very small systems, they're very fish-based, they're very aquatic-based, because it solves so many problems, and it makes so many things maintenance-free or trouble-free or very low-maintenance systems. If something's growing in water, guess what? You don't have to water it. And if it derives its nutrients from that aquatic system primarily, you don't have to provide supplemental nutrient. If you're doing some sort of a wicking system tied into an aquatic system, then you can put just a little bit of organic fertilizer on the top of it and walk away from it and do nothing but harvest and maybe do some, you know, some, a few things every year to, to take things forward. And I think both the aquaponics and aquatic systems work very well together. And over this year, I found a lot of things that seem to make a lot of sense, like I need to redo the layout of some of my oven flow beds in my greenhouse in my primary aquaponic system. When I do, one of those beds, I'm going to grow almost exclusively Swiss chard. Well, sounds crazy, I know. But it's because I have Swiss chard that's two years old growing in an aquaponics bed. Cut and come again. It almost makes it infinitely, it lasts forever. It's a high-dollar vegetable. right? So that one component that becomes something I just don't ever have to worry about again. I have a perpetual supply of that green vegetable for both cooking and for fresh use. And do you want baby or do you want adult? Depends on which leaves I cut. And this is the mindset, and I, I'm telling you, this is a very Asian-centered mindset. And, and I think we're going to see a lot more with aquatics in the future. Um, I definitely think we're going to see extensive growth in urban homesteading. And I, I say that on some levels just to be an ass because a certain family tried to pretend that they own the term and threatened to sue people, and I like to use it whenever I can just to say, go ahead and try to sue me. But I think our urban's almost not the right word for it. The real word is small scale. You know, these are people like Erica Strauss, you know, that specialize in small scale. My buddy David, who I mention often, very much a small scale, high intensity production systems, because all they have is a small piece of land. And David says it's a pretty big lot, but there's only so much of it with sun. And most of that's a pool and a pool deck you can't grow anything in. So he's had to develop these high production systems. Erica has a, you know, a wonderful climate in the Pacific Northwest. It's a fantastic climate to grow, but a very small yard. And the reason I think we'll see that grow is because, number one, it's what most people have. And number two, for many people, it's all that they can afford. And as economic conditions become more difficult, it will more and more become the case that it's what people can afford. I think you'll see even some level of a return to something that was made popular in the 70s by a book called Possum Living. Now, that book was written by a 19-year-old girl, and she had some dumbass attitudes in some parts of it. But overall, it was a pretty damn good book, and it became a national bestseller. And that's a book you might want to look up. I'll put a link in the show notes today. Again, it's called Possum Living. Um, I don't know if they've done anything with any updates of the hard copy, 
but I got the Kindle version a while ago, and she's a whole new afterword where she basically says, yeah, when I said this, I was really being dumb, but she talks about how it applies still today, the, the, the core meat of it. And the basic concept of that was that you know, her and her father went out and bought a very inexpensive house that needed a lot of work, fixed it up, and turned it into a homestead. And it provided them, like they went extreme. And I think the reason we need people to go extreme to be examples is because then we say, well, I don't want to go that extreme, but if they can do that, then I can do this. That See, that's what, that's what heroes or people that inspire us really do. And I'm not saying that they were heroes, but I'm saying when we look at somebody that's a hero to us individually, because I believe that truly having a hero in your life is something very subjective and individualized. Like the people that are held up often as heroes nationally to me are like, eh, You know, everybody does what they have to do when they have to do it. True hero to me is someone that inspires me to make myself be more than I otherwise would be. And I think what heroes do is they do something that we value really, really well or to a level that we hadn't thought was possible. And it lets us see that at least some portion of that is possible for us. And I think that this urban small-scale space, we're seeing a lot of those people now. And I think we'll see people that are going to buy dilapidated houses and fix them up. I think some of these places, we've seen people already, you know, like in Detroit or whatever, they'll buy two houses that are adjacent to each other. They take the fence down so it's one big yard. And they completely destroy one house. And they use salvage from it to fix the other one because it's that bad. But they're still spending less than most people spend on a car. There, there are opportunities like that. But we'll see it everything from, you know, you know, yuppie suburbia down to things like that because people are going to want it and I think you'll even see some softening of things like HOAs because HOAs in the end are run by the people who live in the neighborhoods and as soon as the majority want something to be allowable it becomes allowable in those situations um, I think you're going to see a lot of microgreens and quick return crops so baby greens cut and come again things, things like that that's going to become more and more what people go to is like one of their first things. Because, you know, doing things like baby greens and arugulas and lettuces and things like that in the right environment, from the time I put the seed in the ground till I'm making a salad is going to be between 28 and 35 days. Where I'm down, at that point, I'm just maybe putting my tomato and pepper plants out in the garden that I started or, or what have you if I'm growing from seed. When we look at something like a microgreen, you know, I can produce sunflowers, sunflower microgreens in 7 to 10 days. And it's a fantastic superfood, honestly. So I think we'll see a lot more of that coming to the urban homestead space. A lot of this is here, but I'm talking about the growth. And I, I, I see this more like, so all of these things I've given you aren't the things that everybody will do all these things. It will be one of these things that will take people who are not doing it and be their lead project or their lead thing or their one or two things that they want to do that will bring them into it, I guess is the way I'm putting this. Um, I think you're going to see a lot more backyard orchards and berry patches. Uh, when I started this show in the spring, I would go to like Home Depot and Lowe's and see what was available from a fruit tree standpoint. And berry plants. And it had a very, very small selection and a very small number of varieties. Last spring, when, when I just, I didn't really buy much because I didn't really need much, but um, when I checked what was available, the availability was so much more. 
I think it was the first year that at my local Lowe's, there were more trees that produced edibles in the spring in their little nursery than there were ornamentals. There was a greater quantity. And there was certainly a greater variety than I had ever seen before. I was accustomed to seeing one or two varieties of blackberries, one or two varieties of blueberries on the berry side, and there were dozens. And I saw that happen not just with um, perennials, but even garden vegetables. This year, I mean, I you, you could name the, the uh, heirloom variety of tomato or pepper, and it was probably at you know the box stores, let alone the specialty nurseries. So I think we'll see a lot more growth of that. I think we're going to see a ton of backyard livestock. Uh, that's going to become a big thing. Rabbits and quail, I think, will be your two biggest ones because until we get a little bit more sanity in the world of HOAs and city governments and things like that, they get around the whole issue with chickens. Because the chicken, if you want eggs, the chicken and the duck are the two animals that are just absolute perfection for that. Uh, very, very high production, fairly quick into production, um, and a product that most people are accustomed to eating, large enough to be you know, used as an individual food unit. Uh, decent quality feed is available. It gives you, I mean, the chicken, the advantage of the chicken over the duck, okay, the duck produces a better egg, okay, and it doesn't scratch. But what the chicken does is becomes a garbage disposal for every bit of scrap food you can find. You know, with the exception of like citrus and onions. And there's probably a few, you know, any, any of the alleyums, they don't like garlic and stuff like that, but just about anything else. If you'll eat it, a chicken will eat it. And it's so much so that when we had chickens, we never left a scrap of food behind when we went to a restaurant. Anything we didn't want to take home for ourselves, we just shoved it in a box, came home and dumped it in the compost bin with the chickens, and the chickens took care of it. Uh, so that's something I think you'll see a lot of. But I think that people will go, in many instances that want chickens, will go to quail. Because we can have quail, in, we have a baby quail that's in a brooder, and in six to seven weeks it's giving us eggs. In five weeks it's harvestable as a meat yield. When it comes to being something that can produce food from the standpoint of eggs and meat, there is nothing that competes with the quail, the Courtney's Japanese quail. It also allows for very small, lightweight, modular tractoring systems that will let people tractor livestock in a suburban situation where it's really not practical to do with chickens or it's not legal to do with chickens. And get that very quick turnaround on meat and eggs. You know, you'd have three quail tractors and an incubator, and you could be running a small flock of quail for eggs, very small, because you don't need many for a family. The quail will give you, in general, one egg a day. And then taking some small amount and producing a meat yield, and every five weeks be harvesting a meat yield. And if you grow enough, you could be harvesting enough during that one harvest for quail, one night a week for five weeks. And with that simple rotation, never not have quail once a week if that's what you wanted. Plus have all the eggs you could eat and probably all the eggs your dogs could eat. When it comes to just a straight meat yield, it is almost impossible to compete with rabbits. Once you refine your system and get it down, get the breeding going right, you know, one buck and two does can produce a lot of meat a year. More than a couple of goats will produce for you. And it's a very high quality protein. What will hold people back on that is going to be there are a lot of people that just have a hard time killing an animal and eating it. You know, and I'm talking, I'm talking about vegetarians and vegans here. I'm talking about people that go out and eat a steak any day. But when it comes down to being their responsibility, it's difficult for them. But I think more and more people are learning to bridge that gap. 
I'm seeing people take that step that I never thought would before because they're, they're understanding that that animal's life is so much better than the life of a cow that lives in a CAFO. And that if they're going to eat meat, being responsible for it's not a bad thing. Um, community development's another thing I think that we'll see a lot more going on. I think you'll start seeing a lot more people reaching out to others and a lot more cooperative stuff going on, uh, things being done in maker spaces. Uh, you know, old school block parties maybe might see a rebirth that are centered around homesteading, backyard cookouts, and things like that. Uh, especially in the small-scale urban space where you can walk and, and, and meet 20 neighbors in 10 minutes if you really want to. Where when you're out more in the larger-scale, mid-scale like I am, you know, my neighbors, we all get along well and all, but the, in the end, we all have dogs running around a fenced yard. The only, time you, the only time you can talk to them is when you both catch each other at the gate leaving or coming, right? Because we, we have this, this kind of defensive perimeter set up. And, and that's not a bad thing in of itself, but you have more opportunity for community in these, these smaller scale systems, and that's why I think you're going to see so much growth there. But I think the area you're going to see the greatest growth in homesteading is automation. Because people only have so much time. That's, that's one of the key factors here that people only have so much time. I mean, if you think about it, the entire movement of society has been toward that of automation. And I'm not just talking about the automation that we talk about often that's going to have a dramatic impact on the economy. And we'll actually talk about how that will impact homesteading in a little bit. But I'm just talking about in your daily life. As automation advances, it becomes easier and easier to use. There's almost nothing you can't automate right now. But what do you have to be able to know to be able to do it is the question. And the more we can automate the automation so that a person can just buy an off-the-shelf product and plug it in and have it work, the, 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 the more it will be accepted. So let's talk about an automation technology, nothing really to do with homesteading, other than it might provide you a show on homesteading, that people use every day and don't even think about it as automation, the DVR. So I remember when VCRs first came out, and if you wanted to record a show, you had to like hit record when the show started. But nope, there was a thing in that VCR you could program it to start recording at a certain time and stop recording at a certain time. And it was a pain in the ass to do. It really was. And you'd try it and it wouldn't work, and then you'd finally get it to work, and then, well, you wanted it to do the same time every week, but you had to change the tape, all that stuff, right? So now, a new series comes out that you want to watch, right? Like I was talking yesterday about the, uh, the PBS series on the Vietnam War. You pull up your remote control, you select it, you say, record entire series. Done. Automation takes over and does it. Well, imagine being able to do that with, with components of your homesteading. Sensors that say, hey, you know what, you need a little bit of water right now. Hey, it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit wetter than it should be, so don't water right now. Or things like an aquaponics system. And this is some of the stuff we're working on figuring out right here with some stuff we'll be releasing later this year or maybe early in, in, in 20, uh, 2018. Um, You know, aquaponic systems, one of the things that happens is the supply lines that are delivering water to a bed or a tank or something, over time will get crud in them and clog up. So what do you do? You go out and you open the valve all the way up, and you blow it out really hard, or you, you remove it and clean it out and you put it back on and it goes. But what if there was just something that once a day ran a cleaning cycle? So you didn't have to worry about that anymore. These are the types of things that you, I think you'll see more and more of in automation. There's already the farm bot, which I've re recalled, I've re renamed the garden bot, because it's not really a farm bot. It's like a $3,000 tool built on a CNC machine that will plant, water, and weed a garden for you. 
Well, that's just the first iteration. Those systems are going to get a lot better. So I think you're going to start seeing homestead systems that largely do a lot of the the, the, the daily maintenance themselves so that people can be more in line with deciding what they want from their system, harvesting and utilizing, and that will make it fit in more with the modern lifestyle. So those are all ways that I see uh, things developing and growing in the future. I think we're going to see a lot of primary skill sets return to America. Um, I think composting is something you're going to see become more and more common. I'm, I'm noticing now that like every TV show that I watch about cooking the chef is very proud of the fact that they compost everything. They don't, they don't just throw it away. And not so much like the restaurant stuff, but like I'm talking about like Guy Fieri, right? He has a chicken coop in his backyard, and he has a compost bin. And everything that they do either gets composted or goes to the chickens. And it, it, it gets leaked in almost every show that he does. Now, that's a mainstream network show that this is infiltrated in. So I, I think that that's part of like the, the macro discussion that we're having today. But composting, general gardening, I think, is going to be something that most people are going to know how to do again. And, and if you know a lot of people that garden and you primarily hang out with people like yourself, you might think that's the case now, but it's not. The average person in, in, in our country is lucky if they grew a lima bean in second grade in a science experiment at this point in, in our lives. Now, when I was a kid, I think you could say, like, every kid grew lima beans in the little milk cartons as a science experiment in school. They learned that plants grew. But, I mean, they don't have anything, it seems, in schools. I mean, they've taken wood shop and metal shop and, and these, these, these real-world feedback things like growing a seed and have taken them away. But most people in America, they're lucky if that's what they've done. They, they, the, the concept that they could actually grow their own food is actually pretty foreign to them. You see it with young people that are new to a job at a supermarket. And you go and you grab a couple bunches of parsley and you throw it in a bag and you bring it up. And they're trying to find the label because they don't know what it is. You know, They have no idea what parsley is. When they see it, they, I don't know what this is. It doesn't have a name written on it. And, you know, God help them when you bring them some broccolini. Now they're really confused. But I think we'll see, like, the resurgence of gardening way beyond what we've seen so far. I think food preservation is going to be something that's becoming more and more desirable for people to learn. I'm seeing more. I'm seeing on my next door people doing workshops on canning. I'm gonna do, and it's not like somebody running a business. It's like we just harvested a whole bunch of stuff in the garden, and we're going to be canning this weekend outside of our garage. Anybody that would like to see how that's done can come hang out with us and do that. That's part of that community development that I'm talking about. And I didn't, I just didn't used to see things like that. And, and part of it was that you know when I think back to being a kid, going back to the you know the, the Pennsylvania days, um, well every housewife knew how to can. No one would go learn how to can. What do you mean you don't know how to can? And the younger group of, of women that didn't know how to can didn't want to learn, right? You, you know that, that generation, that Gen X female I'm talking about, they didn't want to learn that shit. A lot of the boomers didn't want to learn that shit. It was your grandparents that every grandma and, and great aunt and whatever knew how to can vegetables, but that's becoming something people want to learn again, and it's not becoming just a female thing. Like, men are learning. I like canning. You know, I like to eat, and I don't like my food to go bad. So I think a lot of food preservation methods. One of the things that I'm seeing that's, like, white hot right now is making your own cured meats. 
Go to, go to YouTube and type in cured meat and see how many channels are either dedicated to it or a big part of what they do has to do with making your own cured meats. I met an Uber driver in North Carolina. We started talking about different things. That's his thing. He makes cured meats and he sells them to his friends. I'm sure that's illegal. I'm sure he doesn't give a damn and neither do I. Right? So you're seeing these food preservation methods come back and then, you know, kind of talking what we talked about earlier with livestock animal husbandry. Most people, they don't know how to take care of an animal. They're lucky if they take care of a cat or a dog. And there's, it, it, you know, taking care of a cat or a dog or a parrot it, it is not the same as taking care of a flock of chickens. In some ways, it's a lot easier, but in some ways, there's a lot of other things that can go wrong. And these, these skill sets are basic, innate human things that have allowed human beings to be what we are over time. We've lost them, and I think we're getting them back. Here's some factors to consider as to why this is going to keep going. Number one is a rapidly changing economy and employment sector. Um, there is going to be less and less jobs for people to do, especially people um, in anything that can be easily automated. So this is this is even a lot of things like engineering and stuff like that. There won't be there won't be any engineers. It's but like one engineer will be able to use automation to do what twenty engineers used to do in the past. And that's already happening. Low-end skill jobs, man. And that's going to be a killer for more reasons than you would think. Not only will it be harder to find these kind of entry-level jobs, but because of that, it will be more difficult to develop an employment track record so that you can move up in your employment. I mean, I want you to think, like, how many people do you know that, like, their first job was being a software engineer? Their first job. Or how many people do you know their first job was something like working in a grocery store stocking shelves? or running a cash register in a toy store, or working in a fast food restaurant. right? And most of us went through something like that. You know, In my case, I worked at a turkey farm, uh, and, and not the part of the farm that grew the turkeys, but the part of the farm that processed. I worked really in a turkey processing plant as a teenager. I worked in a grocery store. I pulled parts off of used cars. Uh, it was one of the jobs that I had working for a guy that ran a, a, a you know a, a junkyard, and, and all of those things are going to be more you know, less available. And so as that happens, and you start to see the economy transform, you're going to see more and more strain put on people, and it's going to become a little less difficult to just buy everything that you need, and you're going to start to see people turning the homesteading to produce more of what they need because it makes more financial logical sense. I think we're starting to see right now a propensity already for people to double up, go into multi-generational homes. Well, you got to go into multi-generational with, with your, your homesteads, and a lot of this stuff gets a little bit easier to do. If, if grandma lives at home or grandpa lives or both of them live at home or there's an in-law suite on the property or something like that where they kind of live or they live across the street, you're seeing that too. People buying smaller homes but being like you know mom and dad living you know across the street from grandma and grandpa and kind of having this... This, you know, everybody loves Raymond dynamic without the craziness. Um, you know, looking after livestock and all gets a lot easier. And we're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing a, a big desire, though, to simplify and pare down. And that's become popular with Gen Xers. It's become popular with aging baby boomers. And it's becoming popular with millennials. Well, who the hell's left? I mean, think about that. Those are your, your your three generations that do everything right now, and they're basically going, I'm becoming dissatisfied with faster, better, cheaper, and more. That's, that's what we've been sold since the 1950s. 
Faster, better, cheaper, more. If you think about 90% of the marketing that goes out, that's what they're marketing. You want this new iPhone because there's a special deal. That means it's cheaper than you thought it would be, even if it's not cheaper than the last one, right? So you can afford it. It's better, it's faster, and you'll have more. And we look around at our houses and we have so much crap we don't use. And what are some of the most popular TV shows that have been created in the last five years? Tiny House Nation. Right? I mean, so that lifestyle I, I think is an extreme. And remember what I said about extremes? They're good because they, they help us see more what we can do. But, you know, the tiny house lifestyle is completely incompatible with the belief that everything should be faster, better, cheaper, and more. So even though that's an extreme demographic segment that not everybody's going to go do, it shows the mentality of the people that are spending the money right now. Starting to say, do I really need all this crap? And simplifying. And when you start simplifying, you start looking for things to take the place of all the shiny crap that used to fill the empty void in your life and walking the woods, harvesting wild mushrooms, picking berries, growing a little garden, you know, making fishing part of your life, whatever it is, because it's not all these things for everyone, it's some of these things for most people is what I'm saying. You start to fill the gaps in with that. And then as community builds, people start to say, well, I don't want to do this, but he does. I don't want birds in my backyard. But this guy has birds. He has more eggs than he can use. So all of a sudden, barter starts to come back into the equation. We start behaving more like normal people. And I think that's what this is really all about. That somehow, along the way, as I go into my final thoughts on this, we have taken the most normal human behavior and seen it as the oddity and taking the oddity and see it as normal behavior. And what I mean by that is we now think of normal behavior as you go to work every day from 8 to 5 at a job you don't like, you drive a mobile metal coffin, we call them cars, to and from work to pay for a house. You spend more time away from the house than in the house, and the majority of the time you spend away from the house is so that you can afford to keep the house that you don't spend that much time in. Then you fill the house with other crap that you cannot afford, you get two weeks a year off if you're lucky. You raise some kids or you don't. You're always in debt. You, you, your food always comes in a package or from a restaurant. And nobody thinks this is weird. I know people in our extended family that eat no food at home. We have one distant in-law, I guess you'd call it, right? My... Uh, my, my daughter-in-law's mother's sister, whatever the hell that is to me, I don't know, but I don't really care. They eat every, they eat snacks and shit at home, but they eat every meal out. She hasn't cooked a meal in 10 years, not one. And neither has the guy. This is normal? This is normal? And then we take a look and we say, well, this, this, you know, this guy has a garden and he produces, you know, half of the vegetables that he eats. He's got a few chickens running around. He's a little odd. Really? Really? I don't do a lot of quoting on this show, but I, I want to give you a quote right now that the very first time I heard it, like, it was written into me to where I could never let go of it and never forget it. 
And the guy that said it is the, the famous farmer from Japan, Masanobu Fukuoka. And what he said was, the ultimate goal of farming is not the growing of crops, but the cultivation and perfection of human beings. And it's what I mean when I say that homesteading, hunting and gathering, growing your own food, taking responsibility for your health, developing community and barter and exchange in a free market, agorist way with the people that live around you, all of these things are innately human. This isn't odd. It isn't odd for a person to be responsible for the food they consume. Isn't odd for a person to ask the question, if I'm going to put this in my body, shouldn't I be sure that it's good and healthy for me rather than doused in poisons and chemicals? That's not odd. Odd is when you say, oh, I don't care, I'll eat the Cheetos, I don't care that the corn was genetically modified in a laboratory so they could spray it with poison. That's fine. Does that make sense? And that's why this has become such a thing. Because we divorced ourselves from reality for over 50 years in America. And at some point, people started to say, this isn't right. This isn't normal. And I'll tell you why that happened. Because there were people along the way, many of them people like yourselves who listen to the show, that wouldn't let go, that always had that little garden. Or at least even when they couldn't have one, they always dreamed again of the day they would have that. That remembered being in a kitchen with a grandmother and cutting up vegetables so that you could can them. That remembered on a cold winter's day being sent outside around the corner into the walkout basement to go down there and grab a jar of pickles or chow chow or a, a can of canned beef or barbecue or something like that for the meal that was going to be prepared that day. They remember, like I do, their grandfather putting on that old jean jacket with the sheepskin inside it and going out on a cold March day into the Pennsylvania winter to cut the first cabbages of the year. That very reality clung to life. Like a coma patient that when they shut off the life support said, hell no, I won't go. And I believe about 10 years ago, that coma patient started wiggling his fingers and his toes and stood up out of bed and said, what the hell's been going on for 50 years? And today, I think he's fully recovered and on his way to live a very long, healthy life. A life that I'm, part, I'm proud to be part of. Anyway, with that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, one of the ways you can support us is a very simple way, and that is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. All you got to do when you're getting ready to go online and buy something, go to tspaz.com, click a link there, buy what you were going to buy anyway, and then you help support the show. How cool is that? And at tspaz.com, I have a, a, a thing that I do every day called Item of the Day where I, I review items that you can use, and today I have one for your homesteading needs. And it's something you won't need often, but when you need it, you'll wish you had it. And it's J.B. Weld, J.B. Weld epoxy, the putty epoxy. Now, I'm a believer in if something works in extreme environments, it works in non-extreme environments. So I don't have in my little cabinet out in my my uh, yard or my uh, outbuilding plain J.B. Weld. I have J.B. Weld water weld. Why? Because J.B. Weld Water Weld will work underwater. It will work on something that's wet. It will work on something that's going to get wet. But it will work just as good as regular J.B. Weld on shit that's dry. And it costs the same. So why the hell would I buy the stuff that only works on dry stuff 
Well, I can get the stuff that works all wet or dry stuff. So I recommend water weld. Um, there are so many things that can break and go wrong in your homestead. And let me tell you a secret about that. You know when they usually break? When it's raining or snowing, even if it's something that generally isn't wet, it's usually wet when you're trying to fix it. JB Weld is some awesome stuff. You can read my review at tspaz.com today. Just click the link to see all of the reviews. You'll see the most current one, which is on JB Weld, and you'll see all of the cool things we'll do. And I'll tell you a story in that review about how I recently saved my butt and made my life a lot better. Uh, again, all you got to do is do your online shopping whenever you're going to shop online at tspaz.com and get on over to Amazon from there. No matter what you buy, you help support the Survival Podcast. Dot com. Next up, let's talk about our song of the day. Um, John Adam, as you might imagine, if you're if you're a, a fan of, of of rock music, especially through the '80s and '90s, you know we've lost another great musician in Tom Petty. So John Adam, who has basically what he does, he makes me a list of about the next 20 songs for the show, and he sends it to me, and then each day I dig into it and see, you know, what the song of the day is, and 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 get it for you and set it all up. Well, I got an email from him today, and he said, with the passing of Tom Petty, I figured an audible was in store. Also, you skipped episode 2090. Uh, I actually didn't skip 2090. I, it's a weird thing. It's all fixed now, and today is episode 2091. Uh, anyway, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers released Learning to Fly in 1991. And well, it is an appropriate song given that, uh, that Tom has uh, unfortunately passed on. Um, I wanted to give you a little bit of the song facts on this one. This comes off of songfacts.com. Many people assume this song is about drugs, but it isn't. Petty got the idea for it when he saw a pilot being interviewed on TV. The pilot said how it wasn't hard learning how to fly. The hardest part was coming down. And I think there's so much truth in that. There's so many things that we do in life that seem like they're really difficult, but it's not really doing it that's difficult. It's stopping or landing or falling off. Give me, I'll give you an example. It had nothing to do with flying. How about skiing? Right? The first time I learned to snow ski, I already knew how to water ski, which I think is actually more difficult to get up and, and hold position water skiing than it is snow skiing because snow skiing, just it's easier, right? You know what you don't have to do when you water ski? You don't have to stop. So I got my ass in my skis. I got up at the top of this kind of you know, semi-easy slope. And I came home. And I fell a couple times. I was in my teens, you know. And, but I got up. And by the time I got to the bottom of that first slope, this, you know, kind of balancing and working things out and steering and shit, no problem. Problem. Whole bunch of people at the bottom of the ski slope. <laughs> oh, Yeah. No brakes. So you do that shit, they tell you where you spread it. It's not working. And I'm speeding up. So I kind of squat down and try to strategically wreck. And again, I'm about 16 years old. First time I ever snow skied. And there's this rather attractive young woman. And I went face first in her ass. Knocked her up in the air out of her skis. And she landed on top of me. And I realized at that moment, I had an apology to make. I only felt so bad about it, and I didn't know how to stop. Learning to ski was easier than learning how to stop. Learning to fly is not that hard, but landing an aircraft is a controlled crash, and that's where things get dicey. There's so many things in life like that. But I think the reason John picked this song, even though that's kind of what the song's really about, 
is learning to fly also kind of fits in with passing on and crossing over that bridge between life and death that all of us will sooner or later, later cross over. I've been known to say many times we are all infected with a terminal illness called life. The day you were born, the countdown, the tick-tocking of the clock until the day that you die started. Whether you're going to live to be 100 or 10, or 110, it doesn't matter. That clock, tick-tock, 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 started. Life is a terminal disease. It's also a great gift. I believe Tom passed away at 66 years of age. That's not that old. I know for a fact there's members of this audience north of that 66, marked by a pretty significant number, that plan on being around for a long time, but you don't know. You just don't know. One thing we do know is life goes faster than you'd expect it to. And, and that's why I think we should spend more time flying. And we'll just figure out landing as we go. But you got to get up off the ground. Make the most of it while you can. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Well, I started out down a dirty road. Started out all alone, and the sun went down as across the hill, and the town lit up. The world gets still I'm learning to fly But I ain't got wings Coming down Is the hardest thing Well the good old days May not return Rocks might melt And the seed may burn Cloud.